Let's pray. We pray and trust, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to us through the word until the church is built and the earth is full of the Father's glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we are uh, landing the plane, so to speak, with our book of Esther sermon series. Next week, Sunday morning, we begin a new sermon series uh, looking at the season of Lent. Wednesday is the official first day of the season of Lent. It's Ash Wednesday. And uh, so we'll be looking at a little bit of a different uh, part of Scripture over the next uh, couple of weeks together. But we uh, finish by looking at uh, Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, and uh, 9, 20 through 25. The same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And the king took off his signet, signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai another bookend. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. But Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose, and she stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, Boy, I wish my kids would talk to me that way. <laughs> Let an order be written. Sorry, kids. That was mean. Let an order be written on overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? There's that word fall again. How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they impaled him on the pole he set up. I'll write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and sealed it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. And so at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, and they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and of the satraps, governors, nobles of the 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and over also to the Jews in their own script and language. And Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Love that line. And then we're going to skip over to uh, chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th months, days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when the sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into days of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of fasting and joy and giving presents of gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Amadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. 
But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. This is the word of the Lord. Noted last week, but read it again, that this past Sunday, $16 billion were wagered on the Super Bowl, which raised a lot of conversations about the place of sports betting. It's kind of hard to watch any kind of event, much less TV anymore, without seeing all kinds of sports betting advertisements. It's almost as if every other ad and every ad on our phone is asking us to put a wager to place, uh, to cast a lot on some kind of sporting event so that we will be more interested, we'll be more invested. Most statistics say that about $15 billion are spent annually on sport betting legally, Another $150 billion illegally. $200 billion. Which raises the question, what is it that draws us to do this? What is it in human nature that wants to throw caution to the wind in an attempt to try to hit it big. It's worth having a conversation around your lunch table or asking a coworker just to get their sense, maybe especially a non-believer. What is it, do you think, in our culture that is so attracted to the idea that even though we have no control over what's happening, no way of influencing the result, we are willing to put a great amount of our livelihood on the outcome. In many ways, the book of Esther, in the villain Haman, does the same thing. He has this idea to murder Mordecai and slaughter the Jews. We hear this idea back in chapter 3. But the way that he decides to carry out this plan is not to sit down and write out the very best way to ensure that all of his enemies will be killed. He, of course, has that decree go out into the whole world, but the first thing he does is he says, I'm going to cast a lot, literally throw a die. If you uh, go home and Google Persian lot, you can actually see clay dice that were made with different drawings on them that were used and often paired with the way in which stars would move to figure out how someone might decide to do something. And so Haman, as a good Persian official, takes these dice, Yahtzee dice, and he compares them to the astrology section in the newspaper or online, and he determines the best way in which his plan can meet its completion. And we're told in chapter 3 that it's the first month of the year, 
And when Haman rolls the dice, to the benefit of the Jews, it lands on the 12th month. Now, this is bad odds, right? If you're Haman, and it's the first month of the year, and it's just begun, it's it's early in the month because the decree goes out on the 13th day. And so for Haman to set up all of the the reading of the stars and getting the dice and, and laying this all out and mapping out this plan. It's early in the month, and so he casts this, and God in his wisdom says, you're going to have to wait as long as possible for your plan and also provide as much time for me to bring about the salvation of my people. And I wonder with Haman, just like I wonder with the betting in our own culture, if the reason we're not drawn to it is that the reality is there is so much of our lives that is out of control, so much that feels like chance, that why not me to hit it big? So much feels beyond our control that maybe, just maybe, fate will choose me. And in Esther, there is this sense where everything is a coin flip. There is this sense that for the Jews, everything is sort of willy-nilly. Everything is just sort of happening. It's all circumstance. The Jew, it's all beyond their control. There's nothing that they can really do to influence what's going to happen. And that is especially true when we hear about Haman's plan. But there is one detail. There is one extremely important detail that we should not miss. Because in chapter 3, verse 7, we are told that when the lot gets cast, the month in which the lot is cast is not a name of a Persian month. It's not January. It's the month of Nisan. Anybody know what happens in the sun? Not even Pastor Ken. Oh, Passover. I knew he'd come through. I wasn't rolling the dice there. In the sun, it's Passover. And for those of us who don't remember Passover, God comes to Moses and he says, you've got to tell the people that tonight the angel of death is going to pass through Egypt. And it's going to pass through not just the Egyptian cities, it's going to pass through the Israelite camps. And I want you to take a lamb, I want you to slit its throat, and I want you to take that blood and I want you to paint it on the doorframe, which feels a little bit like taking a chance, doesn't it? And we actually read in Esther that, that some of the Israelites thought it was foolish. After all, how could the blood of a lamb save you? 
What a silly idea. And so some of the Israelites didn't put blood on the door frames of their homes, and their firstborn sons died. And the author reminds us that on the eve of Passover, on the day before Passover is celebrated, that's when Haman sends out the decree that all of the Jews were to be killed. On the eve of the day that the Israelites would celebrate, that the angel of death passes over them, Because God is not a God of fate or chance or a coin flip, but the God of redemption. That decree goes out. One of the commentators I read this week had a beautiful phrase reflecting on this chapter. He wrote, Isn't this all just an exercise in fate? Some of us think about Pascal's wager, right? Throw yourself at the mercy of God because who knows, if you're with God, you're saved. If you throw your fate the other way, you're no guarantee. If we flip a coin or cast a lot or put blood on the door. But no, this is an exercise in redemption. I think of another story that is well known. It's the story of the the two sons, right? And the younger son goes to the father and says, I want my half of the inheritance. He goes off and he spends it all and he's left with nothing. And he realizes in the pig pen, feeding the cobs to the pigs, that his father's servants are better. And so he, we could argue that he flips a coin and says, I'm going to go home. But the way that Jesus tells the story is that when you flip a coin, you are imagining that you're flipping a coin on God. It is not that at all. That the Father comes out to meet the Son and with an embrace and an acceptance and redemption. And then in the book of Esther, God's people are not flipping a coin to see whether or not it is worth being in God's camp. But they are placing all of their chips, all of their lives, into the truth that the God who created the heavens and the earth is a God not of chance or fate, but of redemption, of taking the sad stories and making them untrue, of taking what is tragedy and being able to turn it into good. God alone can take pain and suffering and turn it into glory. We see the Lamb who is slain in glory, as if saying, the things that would imagine to be most ugly, God takes to make most beautiful. And the Feast of Purim is a feast that reminds God's people that his care for them isn't a coin flip. It's not something to be wagered on. It's not as if God is saying to us when we gather and worship and look at the cross, it's a better bet to trust Jesus. 
That is not what God and his word is inviting us into. God and his word is inviting us to see that the ways in which he guides his people, the way in which he shows up in their lives, is a way of care, a way of provision. And over the last couple of weeks, we as a church family have listened to the testimony of of two dear saints who built their entire life believing that when they would look into the face of death, It wasn't a coin flip, but they could look into the face of death and know redemption. That's why when Gary Trump is laying in the hospital bed and and he's asked, are you ready to go home? There's not a doubt in his mind that when his breath stops, he's with Jesus. And Anna Mae, in all of the hardship she experienced, tomorrow night we're going to gather as God's people. The testimony that she had, in the midst of all of the trouble, in all of the sorrow, God is a God of redemption. And you and I, in our world of where society is imagining that everything is up in the air. There's no purpose behind the scenes. When we look at a tragedy, there's no ability to see that God is doing something that we don't understand, we don't like, we can't imagine he is in and yet he's there. The story of Esther invites us to put our hope not in a coin flip, but in the blood of the Lamb. And the truth of the resurrected Christ who holds us and leads us. Let's pray. God, in Psalm 16, we are reminded that our lot is secure because you do not abandon us to the grave. Our lot is And in fact, our lot is secure because you take our mourning and you turn it into dancing. And we've seen that over the book of Esther as we watch on the night the king cannot sleep. Everything before that is mourning. Everything before that is trouble. Everything before that is trial and tragedy and difficulty and uncertainty. And in the morning, there is deliverance. There is joy. There is celebration. God is your people, some of us today, we are in the night. We are filled with grief. We have incredible anxieties. We have grave uncertainty about our lives and those we love. We look at our world and we wonder, where is it going? And yet we are reminded that joy comes with the morning. And even the darkest night is not night to you. 
And so God, if we are in the night, fill us with hope, replace our despair, and give us perseverance. And if we are anticipating the morning that is full of joy, may we truly be filled with joy and celebration, and may we see the places in which you have been, and may we point to them with glad hearts and full hearts to say, yes, God was there. God was in those details, and I praise his name. And may together, whether we are in the midst of mourning or joy, may we be the community of faith that is consistently rooted in you. For with you, we are secure. God, we pray these things in the precious and holy name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.